Well, here we are in the final few days of 2008. The new year will come upon us in this coming week. So now is the time. I was walking through the aisles of the co-op this afternoon and there is the radio blaring away about New Year's resolutions. Now is the time people are formulating their New Year's resolutions. Have you made any yet? We can, of course, uh, draw on the typical ones that uh, are taken out this time of year. Spend more time with the family, get fit, lose weight, get organised, quit smoking, get out of debt and on and on it goes. I'm still working on my list. I've come up with a few so far. The first of them involves the Christmas tree that is still up in my house. My resolution this year is to actually take it to the recycling place that you can take them to so that I don't start to develop a collection of dead Christmas trees at the back of my garden. I have one from the previous year that I see every single day from my study window. I intend to not have two there in 2009. So that's one of mine. The other one is not to gloat when Australia beats England easily in the ashes this summer. I promise not to gloat. The great problem, of course, uh, with New Year's resolutions, if you've started to make them, is they're not resolutions at all, are they? A resolution, a typical resolution made in law is made between groups of people. Parties get together and they make a resolution, whether it's neighbours or a political party or a nation or even groups of nations. That's what a resolution is. But a New Year's resolution isn't like that at all. It's not so much an agreement between parties as just a unilateral statement that I make. I will exercise more. I will eat less chocolate. But the only person holding me to the resolution is me. And so my resolution is only as binding as I, as I want it to be and for as long as it suits me. And for most of us that's about mid-January, isn't it? About January 17 apparently is the most depressing day of the year and that's about when the wheels fall off for our resolutions. When we realise it is far too cold to exercise, so let's give up that resolution. And when it's as cold as this, chocolate is not, not so much a luxury as a staple item of food and so it would be silly to go without it for a whole year. Now I suspect as Christians we make just as many resolutions as anybody. Great vows promising change is coming. Last year one of the vows I made was that I would start going along to a gym, get fit, one of the typical resolutions. Well as the year has gone on I've become more of a sponsor of the gym than a customer. I'm waiting for a little plaque to be put there at the gym, proudly sponsored by Andrew Reese, because I certainly don't go there as a customer. Now we make many resolutions like that about all sorts of things, whether it be fitness or, or what we eat, but when it comes to your Christian life, when it comes to discipleship, your following of Jesus, have you made any resolutions for the coming year? How are you going as a disciple? As you look back on 2008 and you look ahead to the, the year coming, are you Firing on all cylinders as a disciple, you feel like you're getting somewhere or have you stalled? Or perhaps you feel that 2008 was a year where you started to fall backwards as a disciple. Wherever you are as a disciple here at the end of 2008, let me ask you, how confident are you as a disciple that in 2009 real and lasting change is coming for you? real and lasting growth for you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. How confident are you that that's coming? Well, let me push a little bit further. How confident are you that this year coming will not just be a year of a few resolutions, but a revolutionary one 
for you as a disciple, bringing about wholesale change to your whole being. How confident are you that it's that sort of year coming for you? And I guess I ask this because I think every single year for us as disciples should be revolutionary years, wholesale change years. Because discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ is not about New Year's resolutions. It is about daily revolutions. And so what I want to show you tonight from this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 from God's word is what revolutionary discipleship looks like up close. What it looks like in person to see it go walking so that we can get a bit of a picture in our mind of what it might look like for us in 2009. And I guess I want to show you this picture of the Apostle Paul and he is the one we're going to look at, the disciple we will see. Not so much to to make you lose heart as you look out on 2009 to see Paul and think I could never be like that. To almost give up before the year has even started. In fact my goal is the opposite. I want God's word to fill your heart with confidence that 2009 will indeed be for you a revolutionary year as a disciple. And I want to give you this confidence, not because I am confident that you have the capacity for that sort of change. I'm not confident of that. Nor am I confident that I have that sort of capacity. But what I am confident of is this. As Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. As the new year begins for each one of us as disciples of Jesus, know that your God finishes what he starts. His work in our lives individually and our lives as a church family will continue this year. There's no doubt about it. And the work God is about, the work he is involved in in our lives is revolutionary, isn't it? It's the work of bringing death to life. It's the work of wholesale change. It's the work of, as Jesus says, making all things new. That's revolutionary. And so I want us to see it up close, to see what it would look like, to give us the confidence as we head out on 2009 that this will be that sort of year for us. And essentially in these verses we're going to see two pictures. We're going to see what it feels like to be a disciple of Christ and we're also going to see what it looks like, what it feels like and what it looks like. Let's have a look at firstly what it would feel like to be a revolutionary disciple and you see it there in verse 7. These two letters uh, to the Corinthian Christians are hugely helpful for us as we think about our own discipleship, our own following of Jesus. In the context that that Paul's writing there's a divided Christian community and uh, into that community have come super Christians if you like, super apostles, impressive people, powerful, charismatic popular leaders and then there's Paul and have a look how he describes himself in chapter 4 verse 7. Paul is a jar of clay. Now clay jars uh, were the throwaway containers of the ancient world, the, the Tupperware if you like, useful for storage but that's about it. Now this is the man who in Corinthians calls upon us to imitate him And yet the first line of his resume is not great, is it? I am frail, weak, temporary, average, disposable. I am nothing out of the ordinary. And yet here we have a picture of what it actually feels like to be a disciple. 
And for me, I think these verses are hugely encouraging, aren't they? As, as we think about the year ahead for us as a disciple, it's easy to look around a community, a church family like this one, and, and to feel like Paul does, a battered pot of a Christian. But to be pretty sure you're in the minority, that, that most Christians, most disciples have got their act together. They're made of much stronger stuff than we are. And yet here we have Paul saying, this is what authentic discipleship feels like. It feels like being a jar of clay. And I think we would do well to be more honest with each other about what discipleship actually feels like. I suspect the reason we we struggle to be honest about our own fragility as disciples and as a family of disciples is that the sort of person described here in verse 7 would be swept aside in our world. Imagine a, a person with a resume like this, I am a battered pot, I am fragile, disposable, weak. How long would that last in a job interview? But to write Paul off at this point would be to misunderstand what being a disciple is all about. Do you see why in verse 7 he is like this? It's not a mistake, it's nothing to be embarrassed about at all. In fact, he says it's not just him, it's, it's all of us. We are all clay pots and for a reason. Paul, this battered pot of a man, is the very vessel into which God has poured his all-surpassing power. What resides inside this jar of clay is a treasure of incomparable value. It's the treasure described for us in the previous verse that, that Ed read out for us at the start of our service. It is the treasure of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel. And the more cracked, the more battered that pot is, the more that light shines out of it. The powerful gospel. The powerful word of God is what resides in Paul. The same word that created the heavens and the earth resides in him and all disciples, bringing about wholesale change. As 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, we become a new creation, the old being swept away and the new coming to life. And so given this, if this, is, this man Paul is our model and if this is what life looks like for him, what, what's a day in the life of Paul-like. We'll have a look at verses 8 and 9 to see what discipleship feels like. He is hard-pressed by life, squeezed, stressed. He is perplexed, often cornered by life's troubles. He is hounded, persecuted. He is struck down. That's what it feels like to be a disciple. And it's important to notice when Paul says this, he's not talking about some one-off day where he says, remember that day a few years, a few years ago where everything went wrong. This is, this is the day where I was hard-pressed, perplexed, hounded, struck down. Everything went wrong from the moment I got up to the moment I laid my head down. Now this is every day for Paul. This is what it feels like to be a disciple. But don't miss what is going on in this man's life below the surface. Have a look again at verses 8 and 9. See the thread that is running through it. See these two amazing words, but not. Yes, he is hard-pressed. He's not denying it. He's not trying to say life is perfect for him. No, it's not. He's often hard-pressed, but not crushed. Often put in a spin by life, but not out of control. He often feels hounded but never abandoned. 
struck down but never struck out. You see, each time Paul confronts life this side of heaven, each time he is struck down by something, he grows weaker and weaker yet. But this weakness is met by God's power. He is a walking miracle. And it's not from some inner strength, not from some power of positive thinking, some stoicism that Paul keeps going. No, each time he finds himself meeting these things, hard-pressed, in a spin, hounded and so on, each time that happens, the power to continue comes from God. What does it feel like to be a revolutionary disciple? Well, there's Paul. And while he is speaking here of his own experience, the Bible makes clear that anyone who would seek to follow Jesus will have the same experience. And so as you head out on 2009 as a disciple of Jesus Christ, know this is what it feels like to be a revolutionary one. Well, that's the internal view, if you like, of the picture of what it feels like to be a disciple. What Paul does for us next is he says, this is what it looks like. This is the sort of thing that we should be looking for in our own lives in 2009 and the sort of things we should be looking for in each other's lives in the year to come. And in verses 10 onwards he gives us three pictures, three things that we should see in each other's lives. He says, you want to know what revolutionary discipleship looks like? Firstly, it looks like dying so that others may live. You see it there in verse 10? We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. You know that you are looking at a revolutionary disciple of Jesus Christ when you see someone who sacrifices their own life for the life of others. And you know you are looking at a revolutionary community of disciples when you see a community that does that for the life of others. The picture of discipleship here in these verses I think is remarkable. Every day Paul is seeking to put to death the old man Paul. The man who is obsessed with Paul, the the man who is committed to Paul's good, Paul's prosperity, Paul's reputation. He's dying. And in his place is the one who is walking the path of his king. If you are following Jesus, then you are following the one who gives his life away for the life of others. And so given this, it should not be at all surprising that an authentic follower will do likewise. And do you see why Paul is willing to do it? Again, have a look at verses 10 to 12. Paul says, without his dying, there would be no life for the Corinthians. Paul is crystal clear. He knows that life has only come to this world because of the death of Jesus. And he knows that he, like us, is the very pot, the very jar which carries that life to others. And so he's willing to give up everything that the Corinthians might see that life in operation in his life. And I reckon this pushes us when you think about what discipleship may mean for us in 2009. What would I be willing to give up to see another person live? It's a big question, isn't it? What would I be willing to give up to see another person live? 
I was thinking about that uh, this week as I looked at the year ahead and I reckon one of the things I'm thinking about giving up is anonymity. I look ahead to 2009 and we've thought about it already tonight with one plus one, this initiative to reach out to Ford with the love and message of Jesus. And I think about opportunities I may have to do that and I think about my street and I think most people in my street wouldn't know me from a bar of soap. And I think if that's the case, how could they possibly see in me the life of God that Paul is talking about here? How could they possibly see the love and message of Jesus in my life if they don't even know who I am? I'm a nameless neighbour. That's one of the things I'm going to give up this year, anonymity. What might it look like for us as a church family in 2009? What if you're a small group member? What are you willing to give up to see others in your group come more and more to life in Jesus Christ? I'm not sure if you've ever seen your role as a small group member in that way, but that's what Paul's asking here. Perhaps it might be giving up a sort of a casual attendance, getting there when you can. Or perhaps it's giving up the idea of seeing the group as a sort of a ticker box thing, that this is what real Christians do, so I go along. What are you willing to give up to see the other members of your group come to life in Christ? I think the only way you'll be willing to give up anything is to realise what is happening when you gather with a group of Christians when you sit around God's word together, when you see it transform those around you and you yourself, when you let it comfort you and challenge you and inspire you, when you share your very life with those around you, when you pray with and for each other, when you rejoice together and grieve together and forgive each other and you push each other towards love, what are you willing to give up to see that happen in your group? Will you give up the sort of things that would stop you committing to being there week in, week out or perhaps joining one in the first place? Well, if you are willing to give up that, you will have the privilege in 2009 of seeing people come to life before your very eyes. That's what Paul is saying here. Well, what about the church plan? It seems way off in the distance, doesn't it? This, this thing that we're doing way there, somewhere late 2009, but not yet, but it'll come very quickly. There'll come a night where we'll sit here just like we are tonight and we'll be saying goodbye to some of our church family heading off. Are you willing to go with them? Are you assuming that perhaps others will do it and it's not for you? Perhaps you should think again. If you have caught the vision of what God may do with this plant, if you have a thought of what it would be like to see the people of Brocco Bank and all around that area coming to life in Christ, if the thought of seeing fellow Christians who perhaps have had gifts lying dormant here for years using those excites you, then perhaps this is what you will give up this year. You will leave here and go. Or how about financially? In recent months we've been talking as a church family about reviewing our giving and thinking about what we will give up financially to see this church family flourish. We've been doing that because at the moment as a church family we have a shortfall in our budget which of course will mean that if that doesn't change at some point we will scale back our efforts of bringing people to life in forward. Now that's no small thing is it? It's not like cutting back on chocolate. Think about the sort of things that recent financial sacrifice has led to for our church family.
I mean, think about even just recent months, some of the things that have come about because of generosity. Jonathan Norgate has come on the staff team and he's working with internationals and you've seen them here on a Sunday night. You've seen the fruit of that sacrifice. You've seen the work that he does before the evening service. You've seen the conversations that are happening. The sort of people that will then go back to their nations with the gospel. Or Joe Houghton training youth to reach out to others. Even I, I hear now training leaders, youth leaders in the diocese to go into our schools with the gospel. This is big. People are coming to life because you have given up financially. And I reckon as a church family we should be thinking about what's next rather than what we cut. What are we willing to give up to see others come to life? Let me give you one more thing that I think we need to give up. We need to give up not having hard conversations with each other about sin. We need to give up politeness when we see others trapped in sin. We need to start speaking the truth in love to each other when it comes to our struggles with sin. You know, I met with a guy earlier in the year who has struggled for the same, with the same sin for five to six years. Five to six years and he is surrounded by Christian brothers and sisters, friends who he's done ministry with and no one has questioned it. Proverbs says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Better are the wounds of a friend that can be trusted than an enemy's multiple kisses. We've got to get better at gentle wounds. If you see a brother or sister in Christ making decisions that lead to death, not life, it's time to tell them. Love them by telling them the truth, not being silent. What are you willing to give up to see others come to life? These are big things as we think about our church family and I've mentioned just some of them, just scratch the surface really. How is it that we could possibly be revolutionary in these sort of areas? I reckon the only way is to see what Paul sees in this passage, to see the stakes, to see what is at stake. Have a look again at verses 10 to 12. See the words that he keeps using in these verses. They are the words of life and death. That's the stakes. Life and death. There could be no higher stake, could there? And only when you see those stakes will you see sacrifice as a logical thing rather than an extraordinary thing. And that's where Paul is. In the end, being a revolutionary disciple is being someone in whom the gospel of Jesus is transforming your mind and your heart and your eyes so you see the world as your Lord does. So you have the mind that Christ does that would be willing to go to any length to see another come back to life. So let me ask you, what are you willing to give up in 2009 that others may live? The second uh, picture we're given in this passage of what it looks like to be a disciple is that revolutionary discipleship looks like the resurrection is true. It looks like the resurrection is true. You see it there in verses 13 and 14. Paul, in these verses, takes us back to Psalm 116 where King David celebrates that God would rescue him even from death. And what Paul says in these verses is what was true for David is true for him. He knows it for certain. This is the motivation for his way of life. You see it there, verse 14? Because we know that the one who has raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. 
That's the heart of discipleship. The knowledge that you will be raised by Christ and you will be seated in his presence. That's to be your ambition for this year. And think about how that changes 2009 for you. If your great ambition, your number one ambition for the year ahead is to be raised with Jesus, to be with him, I reckon it's a huge challenge. Is that really your ambition for the year ahead? Now, if you're like me, it's tempting to think, well, yeah, of course, it's in the mix there somewhere, but I know I will be raised from the dead one day and I know that's going to happen, but hopefully not in 2009. I'm thinking more 2059. That's the agenda I'm working with God. That's more my timetable. I've got all sorts of ambitions that come before that one. That one's way back. Well, as the new year rolls around, let me say that is to be your number one ambition. What is it that you're hoping for from the next 12 months? Hear the Bible. Don't settle for small ambitions. Settle for big ones. Being raised, being with him in heaven. If your big ambition for this year is to finish a degree, to have a relationship, to get a career change, a holiday, a property, whatever it might be, then let me give you a suggestion. Give up now. The Bible says that without resurrection hope as your one driving ambition, you are hopeless. Every year that you live without the resurrection front and centre driving you is a year, a hopeless year, the Bible says. It's a year of existing rather than living. And I reckon the great danger for us as Christians is that we exist for a lot of our years rather than live them, filled with resurrection hope. So let me encourage you to make this a year that you live like the resurrection is true. The third and final picture of discipleship that Paul gives us is in verse 16 onwards, which is that revolutionary discipleship looks like daily renewal. We get this one final picture, a picture of our world, and it's a simple one. It's passing away. It's wearing out. And we as citizens are mere clay pots. He's back to that again. To a man and a woman, we are frail and easily broken. You see, the reality is that without hope of something breaking into that system. We are powerless, aren't we? That despite all our resources as humans, all our skills, our wisdom, our ambition, our money, our celebrity, you name it, we're passing away. But into this world, our world on that sort of path, Paul says we do not lose heart. We are miraculous creatures. Andrew Rees, citizen of earth, physically and mentally, is falling apart before your very eyes but Andrew Reese, citizen of heaven, is being raised before your very eyes, being renewed day by day. We do not lose heart because as we face hard pressure, as we face perplexity and troubles and as we are struck down, as I literally waste away before your very eyes, I am being renewed of far more lasting substance, renewed by God's word which is transforming my mind renewed into the very image of the one I trust until I am completely a new creation, the old gone, the new come, until the day when God will renew me even from death. You see, as each day goes by, I am dying. But just as quickly, death is being swallowed up by life, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. That's why we don't lose heart. 
Every time I see that picture that 2 Corinthians 5 gives us of death being swallowed up by life, I, I remember being on a water slide with my dad as a, a young boy. I, I was much smaller, not the Adonis that you see before you now. And uh, I started down this long water slide and it was going well for a little while and then I sort of ran out of momentum, somehow just stopped. There wasn't enough weight to carry me any further down the water slide. So I was just stuck there. Now Dad uh, had, had gone down the water slide behind me and he was made of far weightier substance at that stage, still is. And uh, so he started to barrel down behind me and there I see this huge figure coming around the corner and bang, collides into me and we went racing down the rest of the slide at great speed. Well, that's, I reckon, the picture of discipleship here, the picture of what it feels like to be a Christian. I reckon there's going to be years and maybe 2009 will be one of those where you feel like you're just stuttering along, hardly getting anywhere as a Christian. We'll see the picture that Paul gives us here at the end of our passage. Death will be swallowed up by life. That great renewal which is happening day by day by day will come at great speed at the end when he comes. And so given this, as 2009 rolls around, rather than making some sort of lame resolution about less chocolate or more gym visits, Heed the call of 2 Corinthians 4.18 to fix your faulty vision. Fix your vision not on what is seen but what is unseen. And so when you look ahead and wonder what sort of year this will be for you, fix your eyes on this. The God who finishes what he starts. The powerful gospel that is at work within you, a battered pot. And commit yourself to this being a year where you let that dwell richly in you. Fix your eyes on the unseen stakes that are at play in your home, in your village, in your city, life and death. Fix your eyes on the hope of being raised with him. Fix your eyes on the fact that he is daily renewing you and us as a church family. 2009 is a year for revolutionary discipleship for us. Confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Let's pray.